We are excited to be joined by the author of a brand new book, Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. Thanks for joining us, Neil. Thank you, David. Neil, before we get stuck into the questions, tell us a bit about yourself and how you come to write this book. Well, uh, I grew up in a very loving and moral home, but uh, I was not raised as a Christian. And when I got to college, I was kind of spiritual, but not religious and didn't know much at all about Christianity. I would have called myself a Christian because I was kind of, you know, I'm an American. So in America, if you believe in God, you're a Christian. But I, I knew almost nothing about Christian theology. And uh, so that was kind of how it was throughout college. And really, I was very proud of being spiritual and, and thinking carefully about theological stuff, but, but never went to church, never read the Bible. Oh, I read the Bible once through in high school, just to say I, I did like, oh, I read the Bible all the way through, you know, I'm very intelligent, but, you know, but did not really know much about Christianity at all. And, but in, in uh, my senior college, actually, I met my future wife, Christina, who was a, a Christian and a missionary kid. And um, so a combination of things, we began dating, which is dangerous. <laughs> I don't recommend it, uh, but it worked out in, in our case, God worked it out for good. So through knowing her, and then also through reading C.S. Lewis, I, I loved C.S. Lewis's books and especially the Screwtape Letters. And so I met, I knew my wife, I read C.S. Lewis a ton, and then we actually went out to graduate school in California at Berkeley together. And I said, you know what, I really, I love Christina, I will compromise, I'll start going to church with her. And that introduced me to the gospel. I heard the gospel, I heard that I was a sinner who needed a savior and that was, and then I also saw at church Christian academics, scholars, professors, grad students who were very intelligent and and also were Christians, and that forced me to consider, you know, well, did I believe this or not? I mean, it wasn't just this kind of stuffy, dry theory because my you know my future wife believed it, and also it, it was it was urgent. It wasn't the kind of thing I could brush aside and say, oh, you know, sure, I can go through the motions. Like, no, this is this is real. And so through all of those things, it really came to a head where I said, am I going to follow Jesus or not? I, I don't really know much theology, but I know that they're saying that I need rescue, that I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. I kind of know I do. And and so I just one night I said to God, you know, if if you're Jesus is your son. I'll follow him. I don't know anymore. I used to think I knew everything. I don't know anymore. And so, but I I'm willing to essentially be led and, you know, he led me to Christ. Um, So that, that was how it became. And I had a long way to go theologically, but that was the start of it. So what did discipleship look like for you, Neil? I mean, you spend a lot of your time answering really complicated questions. Did you have a lot of questions yourself and and did you have somebody to be able to disciple you and, and help you along the way? Yeah, that was a huge part of it. So you know, maybe if a week or two after I became a Christian, um, I got involved in a graduate student um, discipleship or Bible study group through our local chapter of InterVarsity. And uh, there I was discipled by these older, more mature Christian guys. And I find if I remember walking into the very first week ever, you know, as a brand new Christian and, and still having this very sort of <laughs> secular outlook about how you relate to people. So I walked into this, you know, little apartment with a bunch of other grad students who are Christians. And I immediately start sizing them up. I'm like that guy looks cool. That guy's not so cool. Like, how do I fit in here? Or, you know, and of course, the, you know, they're looking at me, they're Christians and they're just like, Oh, wonderful. <laughs> but I was still in the mindset of like, well, 
how do I fit into the pecking order? And I'm like, well, wait a minute, there's no pecking order here. <laughs> They're just brothers and brothers in Christ. Anyway, so, but they discipled me over the next four years in graduate school. Um, a few, maybe weeks after I, I joined the study, uh, one of the older guys in the group um, introduced me to Tim Keller's sermons. And so I began listening to Tim Keller and he introduced me to Reformed Theology. And um, there's a lot of you know, just ex- exegesis <laughs> looking at what the Bible says. And so that really grew me through four years of it while I was at Berkeley. Yeah. Wow. The Christian faith is all about Christ. How can we be sure that Jesus was who he said he was, Neil? Sure. This is a classic. Uh, I think that well, there are many arguments here. I think the classic one that I use in my book um, is the trilemma and one of them, at least. And it just it, C.S. Lewis developed it in mere Christianity where he says, you know, Jesus made these outrageous claims. You know, you kind of you kind of read them now as a Christian or even as a non-Christian. You're kind of like you kind of blow right by them. But he claimed outrageous things that if they were on the lips of anyone but Jesus, we would say, well, they're they're crazy. They're either uh, a lunatic or they're a liar, like a charlatan or or they're God. <laughs> you know, Jesus said things like I can forgive sin. He said things like, you know, if you die for my sake, you'll live forever. I'm going to come back at the end of time to judge all humanity. Those are out. Those aren't just kind of like mildly scandalous claims. Those are just blasphemous claims unless he was actually God. And and so uh, that, now, again, if you can realize that and, and his contemporaries did, if you look at how Jesus interacted with the Pharisees or even with the, the common people, uh, Lewis points out they didn't react to him with with mild approval, right? With with you know with 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 slight applause, like quiet applause. They they either worshipped him, or they were terrified of him, or they crucified him. There there was no moderate approval, and so so that that's so we have to make a choice. And then okay, so there's that. So that, that you occasionally run into atheists who will say, "Fine, he's a megalomaniac. He's an evil cult leader. That's it, done." Well, but then you have to ask, well, but how do you explain what he did? <laughs> you know, you look at this man, and again, in the book, I go through this, but you look at a guy who had, he led no armies. He didn't write any books that we have. Like he wasn't a scholar, you know, he, you know, he taught people, but they wrote the books later, but he didn't produce any writings that we have. Um, he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't a politician. He didn't, you know, doesn't, didn't lead a country. He was a itinerant preacher in a backwater province of the Roman empire. Uh, and he, after his death, he had maybe a few dozen, maybe a hundred followers. And so, and, th- and yet, here's the thing: this guy transformed the course of history. And if you look at even atheists today, like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, they will they will agree that Jesus' teaching uh, is transformative; that it, it is it is morally incredible. And you know, even you know, these are atheists saying, "Yeah, that's what what he either." Richard Dawkins says, "Either Jesus himself or whoever wrote his script, <laughs> if he didn't exist." But he'll admit that what we have in the Bible, that teaching codified in the Bible of Jesus, is remarkable. So you have a guy who transformed history, and who taught these incredibly powerful truths about how we should live. How do you just write him off as like a cult leader? That's a very unusual cult leader. It's it, it, it's so it's, it's a more plausible explanation. Maybe he is who he claimed to be. And then the last thing I'd say is in the second section of my book, I talk about the resurrection, that we have evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And we'll get into that more, I guess, later in the interview. But then you have the confluence of three facts. You know, he transformed history. His teaching was morally just 
incredible. And then third, he seems to have risen from the dead. Yeah. Uh, so what do you do about that? You have to actually engage with his claims. You can't just write him off. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the re- resurrection now, Neil. How significant is the resurrection of Christ to why we do believe? Sure. And I think this is where I think Christians depart from, say, liberal religion, liberal theology, because liberal, they'd be professing Christians. But if you look at what historically Christians have believed, they're not Christians because they would say, well, you know, we can follow Jesus, his example. We can even love him. But and whether he rose from the dead or not doesn't really matter. Maybe he rose spiritually from the dead, but the whole bodily resurrection thing doesn't really matter. Well, that's not Christianity because the Bible says, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So he, he's the Bible's clear. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then forget Christianity, abandon it. It's not true. All the things taught by the apostles are not true. You might like them, but they're not true. But he says, no, it's vital. Now, why? Now, you might say, well, I don't get why it's so important. Well, here's the thing. The central Christian message is that you cannot rescue yourself. You had to be rescued by Jesus. And he had to live the perfect life. He had to die on the cross in your place and be raised from the dead to reconcile you to God. That all had to be, had to happen objectively apart from him being an example, you know, you living a better life that had to happen in history in order for you to be rescued. That's why, unlike other religions, you know, you could have Islam with just the teaching. We'll just believe that we should live this path, live this way, and, and you'll got to accept you or Buddhism follow the, you know, the eight pillars of wisdom. And, and then, you know, then you can, then you can do what's right and you can be good and you'll achieve nirvana. But Christianity says, it's not about you doing stuff. It's about Jesus doing stuff for you. And that's why what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection has to have happened or Christianity is not true. Yeah. Yeah. So what evidence do we have for the resurrection? And how do you answer those people that offer other explanations, Neil? So I think there are four big facts we have to reckon with, right? So the question is, did Jesus rise physically from the dead? So the first fact is just Jesus died on the cross. You say, well, I mean, sure, I guess that's, I guess that's it. Well, that's an important point, though, because some people will deny that. We'll see that in a second. People will deny that Jesus died on the cross. And so he, he had to die. And, and fortunately, you know, even historians like liberal uh, Jesus scholars like John Dominic Crossan will say, you know, Jesus died on the cross. It's, it's as certain as anything can be in history. So he died. And then he was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in Joseph's tomb, which is important because it means that we know where the tomb was. And again, it's tested in multiple Gospels. Paul in First Corinthians says he was buried, so it's it's clearly a well-attested tradition that Jesus, yes, he was he died on the cross, and again that's sort of obvious, but it was a method of crucifixion. It wasn't like a it wasn't like discipline. It was it was a method of execution. So he died on the cross and he was buried in a tomb, and they knew where it was. But then that's so that that's pretty well established. The next point is that the tomb was found empty on Sunday after Jesus' execution. And that, again, you say, well, that, are you sure? Well, here's a, a big piece of evidence that the, the women, Jesus' female followers, they found the empty tomb first. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because in Jesus' culture, the testimony of women was not very credible. So you have historians like Josephus, a Jewish historian, saying that in their culture, 
that they believed that the testimony of women was not to be trusted uh, due to the levity and boldness of their sex. Now, that matters because if you are making up stories about, you know, oh, Jesus, the tomb was found empty. Well, if you were making that up, who would you choose, hypothetically, to be your star witness? Well, not a bunch of women who are socially marginal in that culture. And what's more, one of the women was uh, was a former woman who was possessed by demons, right? And so you're kind of like, well, that's a head scratcher. If you're going to make up stories, why not take more? Oh, you know who found her? Uh, you know, the Apostle Peter found Jesus, yeah. the, the tomb empty. You wouldn't pick these people. And again, that's not a, that's a, that piece of evidence carries weight, not just with Christians, but with non-Christian scholars saying, yeah, that's a good point. So Jewish, Jewish historians like Pincus Lapid will say, you know, that's a fair point. The, the, the idea that, um, that the tomb was found by women, that's, that's unusual. It, it points to the fact that the tomb was really found empty and that the disciple, the, the evangelist who wrote the gospels, they felt constrained to report what actually happened. They, they would like to get rid of that, but you know, it happened. So we record it. Um, and, and then of course there were other people who saw the tomb also, but the first reports were, were empty from, from, from women. So that's one big piece. Another big piece is the apostles began preaching about the resurrection in Jerusalem about 40 days after Jesus' death, which again, if the tomb was right there in the city, I mean, someone's going to be like, okay, well, look, the tomb's there. This, this body's right there. there. At least there's a body in the tomb. What's interesting is that it seems like the earliest um, rebuttal to the resurrection was from the Jewish leaders who said, no, you disciples stole the body. That's a funny, it's an end of Matthew. You, you see that the Jews were arguing, no, the, the, the disciples stole the body. It's all a trick. But wait a minute here. And then, and then the Christians were like, no, we didn't steal the body. There's a, the tomb was guarded. But wait a minute, that back and forth is interesting because what does it assume? It assumes there is an empty tomb, right? You can't accuse the disciples of stealing the body if the tomb is full of bodies. So, so even the Jewish, uh, the, the people that did not believe the resurrection happened, even they seem to acknowledge the empty tomb. Okay, so you have Jesus died and was buried. You have the tomb being found empty. And then the third is the apostles' testimony. Um, so here we see that the disciples, uh, the 12, well, the 11 apostles, later Matthias was added, but, but the apostles were preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. And in, in, you know, in Peter's sermon in Acts, the first thing he says is, look, David's tomb is right over there, <laughs> but yeah. Jesus' tomb is empty. That's, yeah. you know, that takes a lot of boldness to be saying that if the tomb is not empty. But number two, they're saying when we saw him, we saw him rose, risen from the dead, we talked to him, we ate with him. That is the consistent testimony of the apostles in the book of Acts, Paul's testimony with that later, but they were, they believed it. And again, you have non-Christian scholars like um, Aslan, that's his name, but he's a Muslim scholar, or more, he's a journalist, but he wrote a popular book on, the, on, on, on Jesus, but he says, that's a good point. These people really, truly believed that they'd seen Jesus. Now, could they have been mistaken? Yeah, sure. But they believed it. How do you know? Well, often they were martyred for their beliefs. So you have people like Paul, Peter, uh, James, who were killed professing the resurrection. They were persecuted and then killed eventually. Now, you could say, well, they were mistaken. Sure, absolutely. You know, people die for, for mistaken beliefs all the time. But they, they were claiming to have seen Jesus and, and eaten with him and talked to him. So that is the kind of thing you don't really mistaken about if i say oh i had breakfast i had cheers for breakfast today or, or i saw i saw my friend michael yesterday night 
okay, that that could, I could, you know, but that's a claim that seems, I, I really believe that claim and it's hard to be mistaken about that kind of claim. And if I die for that claim, if they say, we're going to torture you to death unless you recant, and I don't recant, you got to ask, well, clearly I'm sincere. I might be crazy if I'm sincere. Then finally, lastly, we have the conversion of both the Apostle Paul and James. And so Paul was an enemy of the church. He consented to the killing of the, uh, the Stephen in Acts, and, but he so he was an enemy of the church, did not believe in Jesus, but then had some kind of miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus and, and announced that, no, I'm a Christian now, I've seen Jesus. And then later, we also know uh, sort of secondarily that Jesus' half-brother, James, originally was, was skeptical, didn't really believe Jesus was the Messiah, and then later became the head of the Jerusalem church. So, okay, all of that. So you have four things, death and burial, the empty tomb, the testimony of the apostles, and then the conversion of hostile witnesses like Paul and James. Taken all together, here's the question. Here's one thing I would also point out. None of those facts, those are you know pretty well established. I wouldn't, they're not unanimous, but you could definitely make the case there's a strong evidence for each one of those facts. None of those is miraculous, right? The tomb was empty. Okay, there are different explanations for that. Okay, the apostles believed that they'd seen Jesus. Okay, maybe it's not a miracle, but maybe they were mistaken. Okay, Paul was converted. Maybe he had a seizure. I don't know. So all of those four facts you can explain using non-miraculous explanations, but put all of them together. And now you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. We have yeah. to at least wonder if something really crazy happened, like a miracle, like Jesus rising from the dead. So those yeah. four facts put together, they really resist other explanations. Well, if you don't go and buy the book on the back of that answer already, <laughs> Neil, <laughs> fantastic so what is the moral argument for god's existence and is god necessary to explain objective morality sure so the moral argument is very well known it's an argument that god exists and not just kind of like the spirit but a, a moral god a, god a holy god a god who establishes what is good and evil and right and wrong uh, and so the moral argument is a, a deductive logical argument with two premises two two claims and then if those claims are both true the conclusion follows logically from those premises. So premise one is this. If God does not exist, then objective moral facts about what's good and bad, right and wrong, that those facts don't exist. If God doesn't exist, then objective moral facts don't exist. Premise two, objective moral facts do exist, right? <laughs> so then the conclusion logically is that, well, then God must exist. So if, if God does not exist, there are no moral objective moral facts. Two, there are moral facts. Therefore, logically, it must be true that God exists. That's a moral argument. Uh, and so if you want, that's a, a valid logical argument, meaning that if you want to deny the conclusion, to deny that God exists, you have to deny either premise one. So maybe we can have morality without God, or you can deny premise two. Maybe there aren't moral facts, objective moral facts, like things that are good or evil, or right or wrong. So you can deny the argument in one of two ways. You can deny, or three, right? you can deny one or both of those claims. Um, so should I let me go through like how you'd do that if you were an atheist? Yes. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So for, start with premise one. We could deny, we'd say, okay, I, I, I deny the idea that we need God to ground, to, to explain what morality is or where it comes from. I deny that. We can have morality without God. I don't mean subjective morality, like, well, your morality is that you think that this is good and bad, and I think something else is good and bad, but, you know, it's subjective. No, 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 I'm talking about objective moral facts, about what's good and evil, 
independent of what I believe or you believe or anybody believes. So I compare it to uh, objective physical facts. Gravity is an objective physical fact. It doesn't matter if I believe in gravity or you believe in gravity or everybody in the whole world doesn't believe in gravity, it's still there. So in the same way, objective moral facts would be things like, you know, murdering innocent children for fun is evil. It's just objectively true whether or not we all think it's fine. No, it's just objectively not true. It's, it, these things are objectively wicked. So that's an objective moral fact. Uh, and you could say, well, we don't need God to, to have those things. We could have objective morality without God. And then you have to ask, well, then what, what do you mean? What grounds the concept of right and wrong? Uh, and so here, I think I would just point out that many atheists actually say, no, 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 that premise is right. So if you don't have a God, then you don't have morality. And so J.L. Mackey is a famous atheist philosopher. And he says, look, when you talk about you ought to do this, or this is objectively good, uh, those kind of statements, they sound like authoritative commands. If I say to you, you know, you ought to wash your car, you could say, well, why? And you say, well, you should wash your car if you like having a clean car. Ah, okay, that's a conditional command. I'm saying if you fulfill the condition of wanting to have a clean car, then you ought to wash your car. But when I say to you, you ought to not murder, you say, what's the condition? What's the catch? I say, there's no catch. It's a, it's a completely yeah. blanket yeah. command, authoritative, that no matter what you like, what your values or preferences are, you must not murder. Thou shalt not. Well, Mackie points out that is only really a conceivable category if you have some authoritative lawgiver, right? So there, and you can find numerous atheists, I, I cite them in my book, who will say, hey, we agree with premise one. You know, that kind of thou shalt, thou shalt not language only makes sense if God exists. So what do they do? Well, they deny premise two. They say, well, look, because there is no God like that, therefore those things are meaningless or, or they're not real. Those ideas, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. The objective moral facts like those don't exist. Well, here's the problem with denying premise two. There are many problems. One is this, um, for me at least, the idea that I live in a moral universe is sort of, it's just, I, I can't avoid it. It, it, it. You know, it's it's a basic element of my experience. It'd be like saying, you're not really thinking right now. I'd say, I'm pretty sure I am thinking right now. No, 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 really, it's all an illusion. I'm like, no, look, look, bare bones, my reality, my experience is, yes, I am a thinking person. I, I think, therefore, I am. You're never going to talk me out of that. Well, in the same sense, in the same depth of my experience, I know I live in a moral reality. I, I'm more inclined to believe that I'm a brain in a vat or that I'm living in the matrix. I'm more... I'm more that sounds more credible to me than saying you don't really live in a moral universe. Right and wrong are just figments of your imagination. I'm like, that's insane. And and no one lives that way. You go out in the street, find the most hardened atheist. You'll still see them doing good things and feeling emotions like shame, guilt, empathy. Right? And so no one lives as if there is no morality. We all live that way. And then the last thing I'll say here is that Imagine that, so people say, people occasionally will say, no, no, I, I really, I live that way. I know I do because it's, it's my own preference. I want to live a moral life, but I don't really believe in morality. I'll say to them here, try this out for, for as an experiment. Imagine that 
scientists invented an amorality pill. So you could take the pill and it would make all of your negative moral emotions just evaporate. You'd never again feel guilt or shame. You'd never feel like, you know, you feel, uh, you, you ought to have done something and you feel bad about it. You'll never feel that. You'll still feel like joy. You'll feel love. If you, you give your wife a present and she's excited, you get, you fill up with vicarious joy for her. So all of those things remain, but all that will evaporate and disappear forever is your negative moral emotions. So, so hypothetically, here's the thing. If you take the pill, then you could tuck your kids in at night and, and get this thrill of like, love for them. And then in the morning, if you decided, you know what, I'd rather be single, you just take an ax and murder all of them and, and just not feel anything and just go on with your day and have fun and enjoy the movies. So here's the question. Would you take the pill? No way. No, yeah. And that, yeah, people are like, no, never, never. Here's the question. Why rationally? Because because we, we don't like moral emotions, right? I mean, they're negative. That's the whole point. So why wouldn't you rather be this totally amoral person? Like, you know, I think an American, uh, American Psycho, I haven't watched the movie, but apparently the, the main character is like the sociopath. And they'd say, well, I would, if I took that pill, I'd be a monster. Well, wait a minute. You don't believe in good or evil. <laughs> you don't believe in right and wrong. What do you mean you'd be a monster? But, but everyone, even at the hardest core atheist would just recoil, recoil from taking that pill. Why? They know deep down inside there is good and evil, and that to deny that moral sense that we all have, as people made in God's image, to deny that sense, to eradicate it, is to become a monster. Yeah. So, all, I go through this in my book. There are all kinds of reasons to say no. This idea that there is a moral reality that we have access to through our conscience is just undeniable. We all know it's there, but we suppress that truth in unrighteousness, which is what the Bible says we do in Romans one. Yeah. Yeah, wow, so helpful, Neil. We live in an age where truth claims are offensive for some, and biblical Christianity gives us no other option other than Christ is the only way in which to be saved. How have we got to a point where truth has become subjective, and how do we actually evangelize to a generation like this? Sure, I think that there are people that kind of would, would they be relativists, they'd say, well, truth, you have your truth, I have my truth. I don't think even for a second, if they stop and think about that claim, they're never consistent. So you'll see people that say, well, you have your truth. You know, I have my truth, Let's live our truths. And then they'll turn around and say things like, how dare you not support my favored candidate? Like, how dare you, sir? You're so evil. No, wait, wait a minute. That's my truth you're, you're impinging on. So yeah. and this is that kind of schizophrenic attitude towards moral truth and towards truth in general, just everywhere. So I don't think anyone is remotely consistent. So I, 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 when people say like, well, you have your truth, I have my truth, just, just I would just say, just start, start poking them a little bit. Just ask them, well, what if my truth is that I should be allowed to, you know, I should be allowed to, oh, I should be allowed to just litter. I should be allowed to throw styrofoam on your lawn, or I should be allowed to steal from you. And pretty quickly, depending on what they care about, you'll find that the moral relativist becomes a moral objectivist really fast. <laughs> so I, I don't really buy. And also when it comes to things that we, again, care about, uh, we don't deny truth at a truth in general is objective. So for example, They'll say, well, I think truth itself is relative. Everyone has different perspectives. But then you'll see them like if, you, if their boss says, well, my truth is that I'm going to pay you $1,000 less than I owe you this month in your paycheck, they'll immediately rediscover objective truth really fast. Like, well, objectively, yeah. <laughs> you owed me this. And objectively, $1,000, know, $10,000 minus that. So they'll yeah. rediscover the objectivity of math 
and, and the economy and money and all these things. So yeah. I think that no one really deep down inside, even consistently believes that in terms of how they interact with the world. And it only yeah. takes a few examples to show them that they don't really believe that. Yeah. What does it mean to live in a postmodern world? I, I think that more than anything, it means, especially whether or not you want to call us living in a postmodern world is questionable, but um, I think that we see people skeptical of objective claims. Uh, and, and, and in some ways, they're right to be skeptical because the postmodernists pointed out correctly that what is paraded as objective truth is often is often a narrative that simply wants power. So, there, so you know, sit on, on both sides, you get to say some politician, he makes some claims about gun control or abortion or about healthcare, or anything, name the topic. But the claims he makes, he claims that these are objective truths that he cares about. But you can ask, well, do you really care about those truths? Do you think they're actually true? Or are you simply trying to get us to elect you? And so people, and, and frankly, it's true. We all know that there are people out there who don't really care about what's true. They simply want to get power. So that's true. The problem is that postmodernism tends to be equally skeptical of all truth claims and to always want to see through them and see what the narrative is behind those truth claims. And the problem, like C.S. Lewis says, you can't see through everything forever. The point of seeing through the window is to see the garden outside the window. If everything were transparent. Everything was equally transparent as the window. You couldn't see the window. You couldn't see the garden. You couldn't see anything. So to see through everything is the same as not to see. That's a yeah. Lewis paraphrase. So I think yeah. what we live in a postmodern age where people are, you know, maybe they're even uh, justifiably skeptical of truth claims. But again, I point out they're not skeptical of all truth claims. So what Keller says is they should doubt their doubts. When you say, well, you know, you make those claims about truth, but really you're trying to get me to come to your church. Well, I could say, well, you, you're skeptical of my claims about church because you want to be an atheist. <laughs> so we're kind of stuck. Yeah. So the, yeah. we have to step back and say, okay, we grant that you can use truth as a weapon. We grant that. But now let's step back and say, and yet where does the evidence point? Because if you're not, if you're never going to do that, if you're always going to be cynical about truth, well, then I can be cynical about your claims. And you're going to avoid the evidence yeah. because you don't yeah. want to be a Christian. Yeah. So let's just step back and say, let's, let's again, let's reason together. Let's try to figure out what's true, whether or not it's good for us, whether or not we like it. And that's it. At the end of my book, I say, look, I'm not trying to convince you that Christianity is good, that it appeals to you. I think it is good. I think it is appealing. But my main point is to show you it's true. And if yeah. it's true, whether or not you like it. That's, yeah. And you know, as a scientist, that's to me is second nature. You know, as a scientist, I seek what's true, whether or not I like it, whether or not I have my own preferences. At the end of the day, I say, I'm going to reform my own preferences and my own uh, desires to what is actually true yeah. as best as I can figure it out. So I think it's important for us to always call people away from that complete skepticism towards attempt to see reality for what it actually is. Um, yeah. I think, interestingly, the Bible would say that, um, that that tendency to be cynical, it's really very self-serving because we're cynical about everybody else, but not about us. See, I, yeah. I yeah. value good stuff and I'm a good person. Well, really, the Bible says that's a narrative you're telling yourself to avoid the truth that you're a sinner. Uh, so, so anyway, the, I just think it, it's helpful, I think, for us just to say, look, I agree that we can spin truths, we can spin facts to support our narrative, 
but I think we can't do that do that forever. Some of it's a stop and say, let's actually figure out what's true. Yeah. What is pre-evangelism and what does it actually look like in practice? Yeah, people have talked about pre-evangelism. I think it's actually, um, I think, it, I don't know if it goes back to him, but it certainly doesn't because he wasn't a Christian as far as I know. But um, William James was a philosopher, psychologist, and he coined the idea of a, a live option in terms of how we live. A live option is um, an option that is, is existentially realizable to us. So I think he, he, he may use the example, I'm not sure if he does, but, you know, when he was writing in, I think it was like the turn of the century, you know, it's a live option for him to be either a Christian or an atheist, right? But it's not a live option for him living at the turn of the century to be a medieval knight. Yeah. Like he, you know, he's in, 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 in the 1900s, he, you know, you can't, I'm going to be a medieval knight. I'm going to live by the code of chivalry. No, you can't do that. No one's doing that. Um, so pre-evangelism, you could think about it this way. It's make, creating an environment both in the culture and within a relationship in which becoming a Christian becomes a live option. It goes from being just outside the realm of possibility of conceivability. Like I can't even conceive of being a Christian. It just seems so it's like, it's like saying you should be a medieval knight or you should, you should be an orangutan. Like I, I can't even think of that. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, but you want to bring people to the point in our culture and in relationships where they could at least consider Hmm, that's a live option. It's not like calling me to be, um, you know, a, a, a dragon or to be a space alien. It's calling me to embrace uh, a role or, or a view of reality that's at least plausible. So, uh, you know, that's not evangelism. That's pre-evangelism. It merely opens people up to considering whether they can become a Christian. It's not making them even. Yeah. It's not even. It's not even explaining Christianity or telling them the gospel yet. Which is why, again, it's, it's a, sort of a, a starting point, maybe, but it's not sharing the gospel. Yeah. And how do you do that, Neil? I mean, give us an example. What does that practically look like in terms of it playing out? So I think, again, to be very clear, I, I am not saying you have to proceed evangelism with pre-evangelism. I'm not saying that. I, and I, in the book, I make it very clear, just preaching the gospel from the base level, square one, is yeah. fine. And I even give an argument, the gospel itself is evidence of Christianity. But what I'm saying is pre-evangelism, what happens before preaching the gospel can look, can look a lot of different, different ways. For example, for me, it was simply seeing evangelical Christians who were professors, grad students, postdocs at Berkeley. They didn't do anything. Well, one professor that I had was a cosmologist, and he would wear his church t-shirt to class once a month. That's it. And later I learned he did that intentionally. It was his way of saying, I'm a Christian. If you want to talk to me about it, you can. And I'm open about it. I'm not hiding it. But he did that as a, and that was, was that evangelism? No, it was not evangelism. But it was pre evangelism because it made me think, huh, this guy's a brilliant cosmologist. And yet he goes to the church down the street. Yeah. So yeah. that's a kind of, and it, a lot of things like that, or just things like, if they, if you, if you, you're a Christian, people know you're a Christian. If you are simply a good neighbor to them, if you are kind to them, that is not evangelism. That is not preaching the gospel to them, not using words because the gospel requires words, but yeah. it is making Christianity a live option to them. Cause they're like, Oh, that guy's not a lunatic. Or like, you know, it's my wife too. Like I met my wife before I was a Christian and I was like, wow, she's a really amazing person. She's also a Christian. So I can't, assume that christian equals crazy anymore yeah yeah really helpful 
in the later chapters of your book, you provide some useful thoughts on the, the case for atheists make when claiming there is no God. Let's take a, couple, a look at a couple of these, Neil. Um, what does the Bible say about the problem of evil? You know, it's funny because people act like the problem of evil is this, like is, this shuts down Christianity like it's never been thought of before. I'm like, the Bible's full of people asking, why, God, if you're good, look at the Psalms, look at the entire book of Job, look at Revelation. It's throughout the Bible you have godly men and women asking God, if you're good, where are you, right? How long, oh Lord, how long must I suffer? So the problem of evil is not this, you know, it's been cooked up by 17th century skeptics. <laughs> like David, it's It's been there for a long time. And so I think the Bible gives us many different resources for asking the question, answering the question, if God exists and is good and is all powerful and is all knowing, why doesn't he fix evil? Why doesn't he get rid of, why can, how can it even exist apart, you know, if God exists? And there are many answers here. People, philosophers have, and theologians have talked about uh, many of them um, and, and you see them in the Bible. So for example, uh, Genesis one through three, why does human, why does sin exist? Why does human evil exist? Well, because of the fall. We rebelled against our good creator, and that's why we're all born into sin. Why do people do evil things? Because we're evil. Why, why are we evil? Did God make us evil? No, we fell in Adam, and that's why we're evil now. It's, it's, it was humans who brought sin into the world, and through one man, death came to all men. So that explains where did evil come from? Well, you know, it wasn't God's fault. God's not to blame. It's ultimately human beings who are to blame for the moral evil that we commit. Um, well, what another answer? Well, why does evil, why does God allow evil to occur? And we see things like Genesis in Joseph's story, you know, after he's sold into slavery in an act of immense evil by his brothers, he's put into prison, he's falsely accused, and yet he rises to the, become the prime minister of Egypt. And he says, when he meets his brothers, you intended this for evil. Here you go. You intended this for evil, but what? But God intended this for good, for the saving of many lives. So God will use even human evil, which he hates, to bring about a greater purpose. So, you know, one, humans are to blame for evil. Two, God uses human evil to bring about his good and glorious ends. Uh, in Job, we see that we don't always know why evil happens. The big problem with Job's friends, one of the problems was that they thought they knew why evil happens. Job, you did something wrong. That's why you're, you're suffering. And one of the lessons of Job is that they should have just kept quiet. They did not know. And actually God comes to Job at the end and says, how do you know? You're a human. I am God. You know, I run the universe and you don't. So the, one of the points is that Job never really finds out, as far as we know, why that stuff happened to him. So the Bible says, look, you simply don't have the resources to understand why God allows evil. And then finally, uh, I just point out that, that, God, that God created the universe and everything to show forth his glory. That's why the universe exists. And that logically, uh, the existence of evil and sin demonstrates God's glory in two ways. One, it shows that God is gloriously holy in punishing sin. And then two, he's gloriously merciful in forgiving sin. And you can't have God displaying his glory through like, your punishing sin or forgiving sin if there's no sin. So yeah. even sin, which is wicked and evil, it ultimately is used by God to display his glory. So I think yeah. that's the sort of yeah. the clearest answer is that all of it is in the end going to be for God's glory. Yeah. yeah. Another thing that you mentioned is the hiddenness of God. Tell us about that, Neil. 
Yeah. So I occasionally you'll see, you know, and if I were an atheist, I think I'd say this too, is that, okay, you know, there's some evidence that Christianity is true. There's some evidence God exists, but why isn't there more? I mean, if God is who you say he is, he could just do a miracles right here in my room and like make, I remember a debate with uh, atheist Lawrence Krauss, who, who actually said on stage, you know, if God exists, he can strike me with lightning right now. See, do it, do it. Oh, he didn't do it. So God doesn't exist. You know, so he's, you know, he's daring God to do a miracle right now to show him that he exists and God didn't do it. Therefore, God doesn't exist. So the question is, why doesn't God give us more evidence? And one thing I'd say is, well, how much more do you want exactly? <laughs> I wrote a whole book and there's a lot of, you know, thousands of books out there, maybe thousands, hundreds of books out there with lots and lots of evidence. So how much more do you want? Uh, and so at some level, you have to, have to say, well, look, he's given you some. How many books have you read? Well, none. Okay, wait a minute. <laughs> you can't complain. There's no evidence or not enough evidence. You haven't even taken the barest step towards reading yeah. the evidence. But more than that, I actually say, okay, I'll grant you because there are people who will say, well, I've read many books. I just not, not convinced. I prayed and prayed and prayed that God would give me a sign and he hasn't given me a sign. So if God really loves me and God wants me to be saved, why doesn't he give me more evidence? Well, then I, I said, that, well, wait a minute, here's the thing. Imagine that Jesus appeared to you in your room at night, one night when you're praying for him to appear and he appears to you and he says, he shows you the nail prints in his hands. He does miracles for you in your room. Uh, he, does, he does everything that you need to be intellectually convinced that he is who he claimed to be, that he's God's son. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. But now he says to you, I, now that you know that I am God, that I'm Messiah, then you have to follow me now, which means that you have to give up everything in your life for my sake. You have to be willing to give up you know, your attitudes towards sex, money, power, your career aspirations, relationships, friendships. Um, all of that has to come under my lordship. I am in charge now, not you anymore. I want you to go out tomorrow and tell people the good news of the gospel, that they are damned sinners in danger of hell, but that I died for their sins and I can, they can be reconciled. Tell everybody that you're now a Christian, start going to church and prayer meetings, start reading the Bible, start giving radically to the poor and to the church, the mission of God, start loving your enemies and, and praying for those who mistreat you, forgiving those who've wronged you. So he just basically tells you everything the Bible says about how to live a Christian life. The question is not. Do you believe that he is who he claimed to be? Because we've settled that okay, he's, give, he's giving you evidence. The question is, how do you feel in that moment? And the answer is, you probably feel what I feel, which is claustrophobic. You're like, oh, you know, uh, I need a little, little bit of room here, Jesus, a little wiggle room, because your lordship is kind of threatening to me. Now, what is that called technically? Well, the technical term for that is called sin. <laughs> that... In our hearts, deep down inside, even in, in regenerate Christian people's hearts, there is sin dwelling there that says, I want to be my own God. I want to be my own savior. And, and, and that is the ultimate problem. It's not a matter of not lacking of enough evidence, because even if he got gave us all the evidence we needed, there would still be that volitional problem in our hearts that we want to be masters. And so the point here I'm making is not uh, he couldn't give you more evidence. He'd give you more evidence. I totally, he's God. But the problem is not the evidence. It's your heart. You, know, you might have all this evidence and turn around and say, well, I hate God even more now because he makes these demands on me. So the question then is not really, well, we need more evidence. The question is, well, how can I fix that in my heart? And the answer is you can't. 
but God can. That's the gospel. That God will change your heart and give you a new one that, that desires to live for him and surrender to him. Let's talk about that new heart, because we know the importance of new birth. And as important as uh, apologetics is, we know that unless someone is drawn by God, then they're going to have another three new questions for everyone that you answer. How do you know when to draw the line when speaking with someone, Neil? One thing I found helpful is that at the when I start seeing people, you know, I answer a question, they ask another question. I answer that question, they ask another question. I'll just you know, stop them. You know, they can answer a couple of questions at a time. But sometimes I've just stopped them and I'll say, okay, here's a, here's a, a suggestion to make our time more profitable. Make a list of their top 10 questions. All right. And you tell me, you know, how many to rank them one to 10, number one question, number two question, rank them one to 10. And you tell me how many I have to answer before you'll become a Christian. And that, now, and, and if, if they say, well, you know, if you answer these three, that, that's all the objections I have. I'll become a Christian, right? That's great. And actually, I, I know I have a friend who actually, one of his friends was an engineer and literally had like a list of 15 questions and would go to Bible study and just tick them off. And then when he f- finished the last one, he's like, I'm a Christian now. <laughs> but he really, he genuinely was, I'm ready to believe. And when he answered the questions were answered, he's a Christian. But I think more often than not, people will say, well, I have like a running list. Now that was, wait a minute here. Then the, then the problem is not, questions because you're saying i'm just gonna keep adding them to this list well then what's the real issue right because if it were just questions you'd have some finite number there's nothing beyond that it could it could just be well i just think christianity is too crazy like you know it's not it's not a live option well my point is answering questions may never make that a live option to you if you just think christianity is like star trek or babylon 5 right you're never going to believe it whether or not answer all your questions um, so it's helpful to just have a list or often, you know, I can't, they're going to say, well, I have a list of a hundred questions. You get to answer 98 of them. I'm like, well, I answer the top three, but <laughs> time to answer 98. Uh, but it does help to, for, even for them to, to, to think through that themselves. Like, well, yeah, okay. That's fair. What are my top objections? And maybe they realize, you know, it's really just this one or these two. And maybe they themselves will realize, you know, I have like 50, but if I had these two answers, that would kind of be enough for me. So it's a helpful yeah. exercise for them. And, and then other than that, I would just say, this is a, a common, not downfall, but people should not be afraid to say, I don't know. Like, you know, I, I am not an expert in all these, or any of these fields, right? I, I read a lot, but people will occasionally, and less, less often and less often, because I've read a lot, but, but occasionally they'll ask me a question. I'm like, oh, I have no idea, but I will say that. I don't have to say, oh, I don't know. I'll Google it quickly. <laughs> Just say, yeah. okay, you know what? It's a great question. I don't have the answer. Let me spend some time reading and I'll come back to you in like a week or two and we'll see. And, and also the other thing is I don't even have all the answers. There's some questions that people have asked me that I'm like, I'm not even sure. That's yeah. okay. I mean, I'm a theoretical chemist, right? I have questions about theoretical chemistry that I haven't solved yet, right? I, I, there, but does that make me doubt whether I should be a theoretical chemist or whether quantum mechanics is true? No, <laughs> I have lots of evidence that, that quantum mechanics is, is accurate. It's not going to be overthrown by one random straight question that I have still that lots of people have too. So I think, again, don't be afraid to say, I don't know. And then don't be afraid to say, Hey, give me a few weeks or months to think about it. And I'll get back to you. Yeah. We spoke earlier about the exclusivity of Christ and how by faith he pays the debt for sinners on the cross. How do other world religions deal with the issue of sin, Neil? You know, it's great. I'm going to recommend a book called um, God is Not One by Stephen Prothero, who's not a Christian. And uh, he has, I'm just going to read the quote for him because he points out that different religions approach 
the fundamental problem that humanity has in different ways. They identify different problems and therefore prescribe different solutions. So he's, his argument is no, religions are not all the same. They view reality in entirely different ways. And what's more is Christianity is the only religion that teaches that our problem is sin and the solution is salvation or rescue. He made a quote from him. So this is Stephen Prothero, uh, God is not one, pages 22 to 23. He writes this. While it may seem to be an act of generosity to state that Confucians and Buddhists and Muslims and Jews can also be saved, the statement is actually an act of obfuscation, meaning confusion. Only Christians seek salvation. A sports analogy may be in order here. Which of the following, baseball, basketball, tennis, or golf, is best at scoring runs? The answer, of course, is baseball, because runs is a term foreign to basketball, tennis, and golf alike. Different sports have different goals. To criticize a basketball team for failing to score runs is not to besmirch them. It is simply to misunderstand the game of basketball. And this is the key. Just as hitting home runs is monopoly of one sport, salvation is monopoly of one religion. If you see sin as the human predicament and salvation as a solution, then it makes sense to come to Christ. That's incredible. This is, again, he's not a Christian. He's a professor of religious studies at Boston University, where he was when he wrote the book. And he basically is pointing out, I think the, the easiest way to categorize this is a little simplistic, but is to say that you know, Christianity alone sees sin as the fundamental problem, not just sort of super, not just bad deeds. You know, lots of religions teach we do bad deeds, but sin in Christianity is something deeper. It's a rebellion at our heart against God that's yeah. tainted every single human being on the planet. And then the solution is not to do good deeds, to do rituals, to go to church, to, to say prayers. The solution is you have to have someone from someone from outside God himself come into human history and make and fix the problem once and for all to reconcile human beings to God once and for all on the cross. And that's just different. <laughs> and again, don't take my word for it. You know, I'm just an apologist, but read the book and Prothero himself says, look, that's just a different approach. And you'll find I've read books by Muslims, by Jews, by Buddhists, by Hindus saying effectively, we, we reject that. We don't think that human beings are in that, and that predicament is that dire. We think there are other ways to get to God's blessing or to get God's reconciliation. They're very explicit about that. And so I don't think it's, it's not that I'm not impugning their religions. I'm just saying they recognize they're different. Yeah. So bearing that in mind, we're seeing an ecumenical push, aren't we, across denominations, which includes these interfaith partnerships and shared prayer days. Why is this such a disaster, Neil? Yeah, I think it just gives the impression that we're all kind of worshiping the same God which, uh, I mean, I don't think we are. And so, or even if you, you want to put it more carefully, our worship is not acceptable to God if we don't recognize God for who he is, which is the Christian God. And they, you know, that might sound horrible to you, but it's just, that's what God says in the Bible. I mean, he, he says he, we have to worship him in spirit and in truth. And that if you do not worship him, recognizing you know, who he is and how he's revealed in Christ, well, then you're not reconciled to him yet. Now, by all means, repent and believe the gospel, become a child of God and, and be drawn into his family. But I think it just confuses non-Christians when they're like, wait a minute, you know, I can pray with you and you can pray with me. You see how these ecumenical councils were all together praying together. It's like, well, it's not a really big deal. There's not very much difference. And I said, no, there is a big difference. And there's an eternally big difference. But I think we should avoid, it doesn't mean we should not be friends with non-Christians, that we shouldn't um, work with them. We can work on shared projects together. We can be citizens of the same country. 
Um, but what we can't confuse the issue of whether or not there is sort of a line between those who've been reconciled to God and those who have not. And of course, but to be clear, that line does not run around the institutional church. There are certainly people that go to church every Sunday who are not regenerate and are not reconciled to God and that need to be born again. I'm just pointing out there is a line somewhere. <laughs> it's not me. I'm not drawing the line. Jesus draws the line. He says there's the sheep and the goats. And we just want to make clear that like out of love for our neighbor, we don't want you to go on thinking that everything's, oh, all religions are the same. They're, they're really not. And so we, because we care about that, we want you to, to not make the mistake of thinking, oh, they're all the same. We'll be fine. It's like, well, yeah. not, if, not if Jesus is, is, is real. Yeah, so helpful. Thank you. If, as we both believe, God is real with that Jesus did indeed come to seek and save sinners, then what does that mean to everyone listening right now? I mean, for Christians, I think just makes us refocus our life. Uh, I think just, you know, recent news, people, there's school shootings and um, just wars and all kinds of terrible things happening every day. Uh, Christians need to refocus on eternity. Um, this life is short in the grand scheme of things. And what matters in the end is ultimately where we spend eternity. It sounds cliche, but isn't it so obviously true? I can't control whether I will be alive or dead tomorrow. I can't control whether my kids will be alive or dead tomorrow. And eventually everything I do and every everyone who knows me and loves me, we're all going to be dead. <laughs> so just grasp that and think about that and then reorient your priorities based on that reality. So for Christians, man, if Jesus is who we claim to be, and just love him radically and obey him radically and then tell people that good news, you know, as much as you can. And then for non-Christians, you're listening to this. Take Jesus seriously. I mean, Jesus said we're all of us. We are sinners in need of a rescuer. And that's him. And he can forgive you and change you. And if you, if people realize, if you realize, man, I am messed up. I need a, I don't just need a boost. I don't just need to get my life together. I need, a, I need someone to rescue me and take me by the hand and lead me out of the death that I'm in. Well, Jesus is offering that nobody else is. So, you know, if, please just pick up the Bible, start reading about who Jesus is and who he claimed to be and, and just trust in him because he's offering that to you. And again, nobody else is. No one else can save you. Muhammad isn't even offering to save you. Buddha's not offering to save you. Jesus is. So, and accept his offer. Neil, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time. Before you go, do you have any closing thoughts? Uh, no, not really. I really appreciate this, David. And I, um, I do think, I think one thing I would just say to, again, to Christians is that just believe in the power of the gospel. I think we see a lot of, in the church, we see a lot of um, hand-wringing over, uh, over secular theories like critical race theory and secularism and a gender ideology being taught to our students and where the culture is going and the culture where it's all secondary to the importance of the gospel. I'm not saying you shouldn't care about those things. I'm just saying like, think about how good the good news is. Don't be afraid and go out and, and, and preach the gospel, live in obedience to Jesus, make disciples, go on with the work of the kingdom, and then just trust God to take care of history. It's his, it's, it's, it's his business. It's not, you don't have to change history. You just have to be obedient to God and he will change history. In fact, he'll bring history to its conclusion that he's planned from eternity. Yeah. And what is the best way for people to keep in touch with your work, Neil? Uh, best way probably is just Twitter, uh, at Neil Shenvi, N-E-I-L-S-H-E-N-V-I. Um, I post 
regularly, my just whatever I'm reading or writing about. And I have a website. If you Google Neil Shenvey, you'll find my website. They're like, there's one of me. <laughs> Not a lot of Shenvies in the world. Uh, it's, there are a lot of Shenvies in the world, but Neil Shenvey seems to be fairly an uncommon name. So you'll find me. Well, what I'm going to do, wherever you're listening to this um, interview, um, look in the description below because I'll find the links and I'll make sure that Neil's Twitter, uh, a link to his website, enter the book, are all in the description below. Neil, thanks again for your time. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, David. Thank you, David.